All right, you guys, I am currently struggling with a pinched nerve in my neck. And if you have ever had one, you know the pain. So I am feeling super thankful for today's sponsor, Tanasi. Tanasi's CBD, CBDA is two times better than CBD alone and better than over-the-counter ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and aspirin. It helps soothe and relieve my aches and pains like my pinched nerve, and it's great for sleep and anxiety, so I put it on right before bed. Tanasi was discovered by a team of chemists and biologists at Middle Tennessee State University, and 5% of all revenue is given back to the university partner for ongoing research. It is THC-free and comes in a range of products. I love the topicals, but you can also choose from soft gels, gummies, and tinctures. Satisfaction is guaranteed. Try Tanasi for 30 days, and if you don't love it, you get a full refund. Go to Tanasi.com and use code MOM to get 25% off at checkout. That's T-A-N-A-S-I.com to get 25% off your first order with promo code MOM. Since learning the truth about alcohol over four years ago, I've become pretty skeptical about anything that seems too good to be true. You know, like alcohol. If you're like me and you can spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from a mile away, congrats, you're a skeptic too. Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds our standards. I take Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus every morning because it has high-quality and traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. It's gentle on an empty stomach and has a minty essence in every bottle that helps make taking my multis actually enjoyable. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com forward slash sober mom. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com forward slash sober mom for 25% off. Hi, welcome to the Sober Mom Life podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne of My Kind of Sweet and the Sober Mom Life on Instagram. If you are a mama who has questioned your relationship with alcohol at times, if you're wondering if maybe it's making motherhood harder, this is for you. I will be having candid, honest, funny conversations with other moms who have also thought, hmm, maybe motherhood is better without alcohol. Is it possible? We'll chat and we'll talk about all things sobriety and how we've found freedom in sobriety. I don't consider myself an alcoholic. You don't have to either. And maybe life is brighter without alcohol. I hope you will join us on this journey, and I'm so excited to get started. Happy Monday, and welcome back. You came back to the Sober Mom Life Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Today, I get to talk to Rachel from Sober in Central Park. If you think that sobriety makes your life boring or that you're going to miss out on fun or it's going to be monotonous, uh, go follow Rachel right now. You can hit pause. It's fine. You can hit pause on this podcast. Look up Sober in Central Park. It's also all linked in the show notes. 
Just look at Rachel's feed. She is a gal on the go. I love this story. She talks a lot about growing up with ADHD, which is, I think, a vital component of her story and what happened when she got diagnosed, how that affected her life. She's so open. She's so vulnerable. I think this story will help a lot of women. And just yet another reminder that sober women are unstoppable. You guys, we really are. We're just like the superhero. There needs to be a superhero movie called like Sober Women or Sober. <laughs> I don't know. That's not catchy enough. Sober Woman, like Superman, Sober Woman. I don't know. I'm workshopping it. Stay tuned. Okay. Don't forget, come and follow us on Patreon, Sober Mom Life. It is linked in the show notes. It's patreon.com slash the Sober Mom Life. That is where you get bonus content. You get to be a part of our wonderful community over there. You get Zoom meetings. You get book club. You get to sign up to share your story on the Real Sober Mom Chats on this podcast every Friday. What else? You just get a whole lot of community and connection. And then come and follow me on my kind of suite for the picture of a full and I just have to say amazing sober life. And don't forget, rate and review this thing. If you're liking the podcast, if you're finding it helpful, if you're loving it, if you're not, maybe just don't review it. But if you're loving it, review it and share it with a friend. All right, guys, I'm going to go reheat my coffee again and again and again. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Rachel. Rachel from Sober in Central Park, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes, thanks for being here. You said you're a woman on the go and you really are. <laughs> so you're at Sober in Central Park and like you really are on the go. I was scrolling through. I'm like, oh my, okay, I want to live in New York. I want to be single and live in New York and be sober and it looks amazing. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't always amazing though. And it was always very chaotic and and hard. And it wasn't until I stopped drinking that I was able to have a life where I even wanted to show people like what I was doing. And I wanted to be on the go. Like I wasn't on the go before. I was very much like work, home to drink, work, maybe out a little bit than home to drink. <laughs> yeah. The cycle, right? Okay. So let's start. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your story. So let's talk about your drinking story before we get into the, to the wonderful sobriety part. So the drinking story is, you know, the tale of starting when I was 14, figuring out, wow, I can escape my feelings really easily just by drinking this beverage, mm -hmm. which quickly turned into me doing a lot more than just drinking. Yeah. And, you know, doing anything I can could to like numb myself and escape. But I also then thought, this is what adults do. Yeah. Did it feel like you were escaping or did it feel just like, okay, well, no, this is kind of what everyone's doing. And so I'm going to join in. Or did you even know back then that you were like uncomfortable or it was too much or something was off. Yeah. I knew back then that I was different. Um, I also had struggles that people around me didn't have. And mm -hmm. I was always, you know, being told I talked too much in class. I was, you know, getting trouble in trouble for who, everything. <laughs> like I was always like being talked to by the teacher or I was like, there was drama. Well, I know now I was ADHD and just not diagnosed and being treated like a neurotypical person when I was not neurotypical. And that is really hard as a kid, but for anybody, but especially back 20 years ago, they didn't study ADHD in women. They only studied it in young boys. Really? 
That is crazy. <laughs> it is. It's, it is. Well, it's not really surprising. Though, I mean, it? yeah. I mean, through today's <laughs> lens, it's crazy. But yeah, when you go back 20 years, you're like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's wild. But yeah, ADHD presents so much differently in women. And that's something I've been really learning more about even in the last few years. I was lucky to be diagnosed at age 15. All of the time leading up to that, there are the telltale signs of ADHD in, woman, in a woman, a young yeah, female. Yeah, so what is that? How is it different than boys or men? Women can mask very, very well, and they can convince the doctor or whoever they're talking to that I'm fine, I'm normal. There's, I don't have the traits that a lot of men, you think about, like you can't sit still, you're all over the place. That's not typical in women. It's the masking, the anxiety, feeling kind of lost, just like you don't fit in. I look back to the comments from my teachers on my report cards, like won't sit still in class, talks too much in class. Like (laughs) those were some telltale signs. (laughs) Yeah. And so then you finally did get diagnosed at 15. Yeah. Well, I went to boarding school because I almost failed out of public school. I just stopped going to class. My parents got divorced and I took that as, oh, I can now do whatever I want. My dad was very much the disciplinarian and now that I had free range with my mom, I was like, oh, I'm not going to go to class. I'm just going to go hang out with the older kids and smoke cigarettes in the parking lot and whatever. And my mom, you know, school was really important to her. And so she was like, you're repeating your sophomore year. You're going to boarding school. You're not going to go down this rabbit hole. And that's where I got lucky because everyone at my school was ADHD. Really? Okay, so what kind of boarding school was it? Was it like a prep school boarding school or Mm -hmm. was it like – Okay, so was it like – you know, I always think of cruel intentions. I mean, of course. Yeah. It was very much what you would picture or imagine as a boarding school to be like. Uh, It was co-ed. It was prep school. There were a lot of rules. We were in the middle of nowhere. We were in, in the mountains of Western Mass. I spent my first, actually the whole three years I was there, just trying to smoke cigarettes in the woods and not get caught by teachers. They made me do a nicotine cessation program between my sophomore year and my junior year to come back to the school. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. I was always getting into trouble. (laughs) Yeah. You were like pushing the boundaries. You were like, let me see what I can get away with, right? Yeah. No, I was always pushing the boundaries. and But I also, which I've learned about being ADHD is – you don't like being told what to do, but you're not going to do something unless you have an outside person watching you. Oh, <laughs> look at that little trap. That's like a catch-22, yeah. right? Uh, well, I feel like ADHD is just a catch-22. Yeah. Like you want to do everything at the same time and then you get executive dysfunction and you don't want to do it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like paralysis by analysis where you're like, oh, okay, now I can't do anything. Okay. I'm, I'm totally starting to see – because I mean – it does seem like a lot of people are talking about ADHD now and like ADHD in adults and like it's more in the zeitgeist, I think, than it's ever been. And I didn't really know much about it, especially in women. Like I didn't know that it feels like anxiety and yeah. Well, not all. I mean, there's other pieces to it. It's just women are so much better. Like women can mask and you can basically match with the other person you're talking to and and absorb their traits and characteristics and mirror them. So that person's not going to think that you're acting weird or there's anything off with you because you're literally mirroring the person you're talking to. Yeah. And then that can, I mean, that proves a problem because then you're not getting the help you need. Yeah. I mean, the, the only reason I was diagnosed was a teacher thought I had missed my meds for the morning. And she's oh. like, you didn't get your meds. And I'm like, I'm not on meds. And she's like, 
there we go. Uh, You're ADHD really? for sure. Okay. So that yeah. happened at boarding school where they were able to mm-hmm. see. Okay. And so then how did that – so then they you went on meds? Mm-hmm. And okay. they would give it to us every morning. Uh, you, w- you waited in line and they gave you their meds. They watched you swallow it. Oh, wow. And you go to class. But they didn't – no one sat me down and was like, this is what ADHD means. This is what is literally happening in your brain. And this is what you should be making sure you do in the future so you don't harm yourself. What no one told me was that the biggest thing about ADHD is you don't produce as much dopamine in your brain naturally. Okay. It's just that's the way your brain's wired. So anything that triggers a dopamine release, you can become addicted to very quickly. Smoking Alcohol, songs, people, food. I mean, it can be really anything. Oh, that makes so much sense. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so when did you when did you learn that? Because I'm picturing, you know, you're struggling, you have ADHD, your parents got divorced. Like I come from a divorced family and that's tough in itself. You're in this new boarding school. And so then they give you meds and they're just like, okay, keep it moving. Now you're fixed and now let's keep it going, right? But then that's not the easy fix. Right. But the weird thing is, is at first it was. For the the rest of high school, it was the fix because I went from a place where my GPA was so low, they put me in a mandatory study hall. Then I got on the meds and I was actually applying myself and I was put in all AP classes and my GPA became the highest in the school. (laughs) And they start, it was really crazy. And my senior superlatives, my senior year were lives in the library and gets away with the most shit. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Those were the two. Uh, So that was always like my all or nothing personality always playing out is like, I, there was no middle. I was either going to be chain smoking in the woods or studying for AP Calc. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you could just see then where that leads, right? Like as into adulthood and when you're still not figuring – like when you still don't have the information about your brain and about how it works, like you could you could see. I also started abusing the medication. That was the beginning of of it all. That's really what I think back to. And I I just had no clue – you know, I saw a, a reel recently or TikTok of someone saying my undiagnosed ADHD really made me reckless and impulsive and dangerous in decision-making growing up. And I actually remixed it and was like, my diagnosed ADHD did all of those things as well. A diagnosis doesn't take away the danger, irresponsibility. All of those things that come with ADHD don't just get, go away when you get put on a medication. Right. Because a big part of medication and like dealing with a diagnosis and figuring it out is like the therapeutic part, right? So just like I have yeah. I have anxiety and OCD and it's like I, I'm on I'm on medicine for my OCD, but I can't like there's still a lot to talk about and a lot to learn. Yeah. I mean, I was in therapy on and off, but they were just kind of like, here's some really strong medicine. Goodbye. Yes. Yeah. Check in with me once every few months. Yeah. And that opened the door. Yeah. So then you found yourself turning to alcohol and other substances more at the boarding school or when did that kind of ramp up? No, boarding school was probably saved me from addiction way earlier. So I was already heading down that path. Before I went to boarding school, I had already done cocaine. I had already been doing that and drinking. So, but boarding school, like 
as someone who doesn't like to follow rules, there are certain rules I'm like, I'm not going to go and break. Like if it was a zero tolerance school. Okay. You were caught smoking weed one time, drinking one time. You were kicked out of school. And this was already like my second chance that I was being given. And I was like, I'm not going to like ruin this. So you were like, okay, I'm going to stay in. Like you were, you kind of bought in and you were like, this is my second chance. I'm going to be the best at this and I'm going to rock it. And so then you did that. You graduate. And then what happens? I got into my first choice college, early decision, which was the goal. And I was like, okay, I'm, I've made it into where I, I got through the rough part. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> I know. Um, I know. You're yeah. like, nope. Nope. <laughs> no. Nope. Cause then I get to a school and a lot of kids who were at school had never lived away from their families before. But I had. I've been living away from my family for three years. That wasn't a worry of mine. I just wanted to make friends. And I lived close enough to the college from my mom's house where I like brought my own like weed with me. And like, I was like, this is how I'm going to make friends. Like who wants to smoke weed? Like that's just how I'm going to make friends. (laughs) And it probably worked. (laughs) (laughs) It totally worked. But I realized that, and I made a lot of my friends honestly from smoking cigarettes. Yeah. Oh my God. Me too. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So like freshman year of college and I wasn't like a big smoker. I was like social, right? But it was, I made my best friend in college because we would smoke cigarettes. Like in a cigarette, we would joke, it's like seven minutes. So we're like, okay, let's just like talk for seven minutes and then we'll see you later. And like, we'll meet back here in like an hour or something. It gave you something to look forward to while you were studying. Like I remember being on email chains, like sig break in 10 outside this exit of the library. And we'd all come and like have a sig break and then we'd all go back to studying. And yeah, it was a very social thing, especially in college. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, being, I know, and I know a a lot of schools have heavy drinking cultures and it's not school specific, but I don't think I ever imagined this school that also my family was like obsessed with. And like, I grew up going up there every year and I just like, didn't think the partying and drinking culture would have been what it, what it was. And it normalized it for me that people black out, people pee the bed, people do all of these things that like, Oh yeah. Oh, oh, they did that. Yeah. Whatever. It's not a big deal. Like like the binge drinking, right? Like binge, like let's just like binge drink and then let's help each other piece together our nights the next morning. Right. Yeah. Uh, but then it turned a lot, it got bad quickly. Like I, it wasn't just drinking. I mean, it was really a lot of party drugs and I got heavily into it. I also had connections from where I lived that made it easily accessible for me. And most people at the school, these drugs were inaccessible to them. Yeah. Yeah. So I was kind of the middle man. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I did a lot of stuff that that I just can't believe I did. I'm lucky that I nothing ever happened. I'm lucky fentanyl didn't exist back then. So I think scary. about that a lot. I don't think I would be alive if fentanyl was a thing back then. It's terrifying. I think you're definitely not alone in looking back on your college experience and saying like, holy shit, how did I survive? How did I come out on the other side? Like I think about that a lot. Yeah. It's scary to think about. And it is. I also like a lot of traumas happen there. And I don't know if they would have happened if I had been drinking or not, but they happened that I'm still getting over. And it makes it, you know, I, I don't want to beat myself up for past things. Also, a lot of these things were by people that I had no power over, you know, like sexual assault kind of stuff. And, you know, that's just stuff that lives with you forever. 
Yes. It's so hard. And then that is so much of the work in sobriety, right? Is like all of that stuff is so hard to feel and like so shitty to to open those doors. I know that that was my probably like first year of sobriety being like, okay, you know, those things that happened in the past and the things that you did, well, I'm going to look at those now. And it's like, oh God, but I've I've shut that and I've locked that door for so long. I don't want to look at those. And you just have to like – I mean a therapist is almost required. It's definitely helpful. But yeah, to love yourself through that and like that's tough. The loving yourself piece is what really resonated with me because – Yeah. Yeah. But I kind of feel like with mine, I've been diving in and healing those traumas before I stopped drinking and really, really trying to get to the root causes – because I didn't want to stop drinking. Like I was trying to heal myself in every way possible without having to stop drinking. Right. You're like, not that. Exactly. I'm like, let me do everything else I can. But then when my therapist, who I still am seeing the same, I'm still seeing the same therapist. This is a therapist I got in 2017. And so she's been with me though for the whole journey. Oh, that's, that's so valuable that she saw you through, yeah, through the drinking and now in sobriety. Through everything, through me getting secret married, divorced. Through <gasps> wait, me okay, we need to like, hear all this. Wait, I need to. I need to hear more. <laughs> okay, wait, 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 wait. We're jumping yeah, in. I mean, I just used to do dumb stuff, but course, I don't regret well, it. I mean, we all did. <laughs> you're not alone. Okay, so okay, so you're you're in college. You're bring. You're like kind of the. You're the middleman, right? You're wheeling and dealing. I'm the party. I'm just. I can describe it as like I would come and be the party. That's how everyone knew me. So it took me seven years to graduate. I ended up leaving school twice on two different medical leaves. One medical leave was really, really scary. And I still can't believe that it happened. I I kind of had like a psychotic break, I would call it. I don't know. I was never officially diagnosed during it. I wouldn't go. I mean, I, I but I, I kind of say it like for three months, it kind of felt like I was permanently tripping on acid. Wow. I think it was a drug-induced state of mania. And, but it it was a, it was like something clicked in my brain and all of a sudden I couldn't control what was coming out of my mouth. If I was like thinking it, it was coming out. There was literally no filter and being in that kind of a reality is really, really scary. Totally. That is terrifying. I mean, and anytime you're in a battle with your brain or just some sort of, you know, like your brain is is not working the way you want it to. I think as someone who struggled with postpartum OCD and like that, it's just terrifying. It was totally, I didn't know if I would ever stop. And then I, 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 yeah, with the other time I actually came to New York because I didn't know what to do with myself. I got a job. I was out of school for about nine months, 10 months. Then I went back and right when I got back, I was assaulted by a friend's boyfriend. Oh, I'm so sorry. And so things just kept happening. and I, But I played the victim mentality too, right? I was like, things are always happening to me. You know, it was just always one thing after another. And it was an exhausting reality to live in. And that also then made me want to go just keep escaping. Yes, of course. Like, I mean, that just like, makes sense, right? Like that – I mean, it doesn't work because we know that. We know that alcohol doesn't work and drugs – but – like I hope that that's where the compassion comes in for your story when you when you think about it because like of course you wanted to and and when that's the only thing you knew because all that shit is really hard to feel. Yeah. Okay. So when you were in college, then you went back. Did you end up graduating from Dartmouth? 
Mm-hmm. And then what happens? And then, you know, I didn't even have a job the first year. I was, I came right back to New York. I was always like scurrying back to New York the, yeah. every chance I could. And I just party. New York's also a place that's very conducive to the party. Yeah. <laughs> Easy to party in New York for sure. It is. It is. And I, I actually lived very close to where I am right now in Brooklyn. And I just survived. That is something I've been thinking about recently is surviving versus thriving. Yes. And I definitely was just surviving. It was not the greatest. Yeah. But uh, I found a job. I got a job. I fell into it. And it was working as an assistant for a big nonprofit. That was kind of a trauma, traumatizing job, actually. Really? And yeah. I didn't realize that, like, all – I don't know why I kept putting myself in these situations where yeah. I was around every turn, like, yelled at or – I don't know. But I I just fell into the job. Yeah. I was like, this will do. Yeah. And then I just kind of fell myself in development roles in nonprofits and I was doing big events. I actually met my now ex in 2016 and he's from Italy. And okay. I was like, we need to be together. Like, you're my person. That's it. After a few months of knowing each other, I was just like, I'm ready. And he's like, well, you're, what, how, what are we going to do? My visa's up. And he was back in Italy and I went to visit. And I was like, we're going to get married. Okay. And he was like, what do you mean? He, I was you're like, like, no, no we're, we're going to get it. We're getting married. We're, I'm getting us a visa. 90 Day Fiance was a show then, but I didn't, it wasn't like as big as it is now. It wasn't like a thing. I didn't won't know what a K-1 visa was. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me you guys were on 90 Day Fiance. I'm like, were you on no, 90 my, Day? Okay, okay. No, my <laughs> friend tried to get me to go on. And I was it's like, a- I don't do reality TV. <laughs> I know, I know. But it was exactly a, a 90 Day Fiance. A K-1 visa, we had 90 days to get married. Oh, and wow. we got married on the 87th day at Town Hall. Oh, my and God. And yeah, it was a lot. I didn't tell my dad until after the fact. Okay. And it didn't go well. Well, I mean, who with my dad or with my ex? Both. <laughs> <laughs> well, my dad was did the stereotypical thing that everyone would say to me. Oh, he's just using you for a green card. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm so annoying. He could find someone way less annoying to use for a green card, please. And You're it like, was my this idea. Is not the easiest way you. to get it. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, this whole thing was my idea. Like, calm down. Yeah. No, he was really good for me at the time. I mean, he didn't oh, really good. drink. He was really grounding. And for a while, it was fine. But I think as I slowly realized that I had made a really big mistake, I also started just numbing myself more and more. Totally. Because now you're – yeah, now you're married and you're like, wait. That's not like you could just like easily break up. Yeah, no. And I also didn't – I then it, it just – everything spiraled to the point where like I ended up – moving jobs. I mean, that's really the only way you can get a significant salary increase, not in the nonprofit world. Yeah. So I, you know, was work, trying to work my way up and also have this relationship and find myself, even though I didn't, what I was doing made me feel good in the sense that I was giving back to the community. I was trying to help society, yeah. but I didn't see my direct impact at all. I, I don't know. I was taking money from wealthy New Yorkers, giving it to other people. It made me, help me sleep at night, but like uh, I don't know. It wasn't my thing. Yeah. I, I just was like, all I wanted to do was just numb. I would, it started, the drinking started getting bad. It was like, I can, you can, I, I can see it when I look back through my pictures from when I met my ex, I started gaining more weight. I started just looking unhappy. You can see it like the, the, the light come leave my face. It's, it's yes. wild. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it just kept getting worse. And then I was drinking. I, I preferred to drink alone and I loved to drink whiskey on the rocks. Mm. And I would, the first thing I would do when I got home was like have a big cup of Maker's Mark and then I would go walk the dog. And then things started happening. Like I started getting hurt. And I, you know, I had my, one of my doctors at the time my, who prescribed me medicine made me take a, a, a quiz about my drinking. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to. He's like, just do it. And I remember the question. It was like, have you ever hurt yourself while drinking? And I was like, well, well, what do you mean? Just tripping the count, like bumping into things like, and he was like, well, I guess not. But then I was thinking like, crap, I really did hurt myself that time by like running with the dog and tripping on the sidewalk and like really busting open my knee or like, and that was because I was drunk and like so many other things. And I, I knew I had a problem. I would say like five years before I stopped drinking, I had admitted it out loud to a friend of mine, but I said, I was like, I'm not ready to stop. I will eventually. I said to her, I will stop one day, but that's not today. And that's that we always talk about on this podcast, like the five stages of change. Like my mom is big about like telling us like how change works. And that is how it works. Where it's that like pre-contemplation where you're not even like thinking about it. And then that contemplation of like, huh, yeah, probably, but not yet. I'm not ready. There's a whole lot of other stuff that it's all of those building blocks. So that moment five years ago was like the start, it sounded like, of the path toward it. Even if it was up and down. Well, I would say now it's actually since that moment that I first said it out loud, it would be eight years ago. Oh, yeah. And then it, it you didn't you kept drinking for five more years. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember the moment though that where it just hit me where I was like, this is the time where I got to kind of get going. Um, it was COVID. When COVID happened, I truly believe I had manifested the entire lockdown. I, I believe that I had manifested this pause into my life because I was about to have another nervous breakdown. Uh, my sister was getting married and it, she was a COVID bride, but before COVID hit, oh. I was planning her bachelorette to Miami. Her we- I was the maid of honor in her wedding. I looked in the mirror and didn't recognize myself. Mm-hmm. They didn't even have a size dress for me to try on in the store for the bridal stuff that, that I could even try on. Okay, I felt like crap all the time. My ex and I, I really wanted to break up with him, like, but we lived together, so I didn't know what I would do. This is New York City. It's like expensive to breathe here. And so I was like, what do I do? I hated my job. I felt so trapped. I was praying, praying to have a pause to where I could just like catch my breath and figure things out because yeah. I was like, I just need some time to figure this out. Yeah. And then COVID happened. Wow. You did manifest that shit. (laughs) I was like, I don't have to go to the job I hate. Okay. And then I was like, wait, my sister's wedding's postponed. Hmm. Okay. And then I was, and then my lease in my apartment was up, but my mom was like, I don't want you staying in New York. I have a lake house. Go to the lake house. She has one in New Hampshire. She lives in Boston. And I was like, okay. So I put all my stuff in storage, took my dog and my ex to the lake And I thought that was what I wanted. I thought I just wanted to not have any responsibility. I didn't want to have to go to work. I didn't want to have to do anything except for drink, eat, chill, watch TV. That was it. Yeah. So I got it. And I was, I would lay there and I was like, wait, why am I still unhappy? Mm. Yeah. That is like the shit when you're like, oh, holy shit. Like I thought that this is what I wanted and now I have it and I'm still unhappy. Like that's a low moment, I think, when you're like, oh, fuck. Like what does this mean? Yeah. 
I was like, wait a second. I don't have to do anything. No, I'm not going to even feel FOMO because no one's doing it. Right. And I can just lay here and binge watch TV and drink. And like, I gained a ton of weight and I, I was still just as miserable. And so I was like, I remember the moment I was laying, I was in the lake and I was by myself and I was drinking in a tube and this guy goes running by, um, I could, I could see the street. And I think to myself, what a, what a loser. <laughs> You're like, look at that guy running. Look at him using his lungs. He's such a loser. <laughs> like a loser as I'm sitting there alone drinking yeah. by myself in, in the tube. And like unhappy and Yeah. And then, so I stopped myself. I was like, wait a second. I'm the loser. I'm the loser. I'm, am <laughs> I guy. the loser? Wait a second. So I, literally, th- that was my brain. I was like, wait, he's not the loser. You're the loser. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's me. So it was like an out-of-body thing, it sounds like. It was. I can literally see myself floating in the lake. I, I think I had an out-of-body experience. And I remember having this conversation with myself. And I was like, how do I get to have the motivation of that guy where he sees this beautiful day and he's like, let me go on a run instead of let me go drink by myself. And I was like, hmm, he's definitely not drinking until he passes out every night on the couch. And I was like, that's probably a good place for me to start. So you tied it to alcohol pretty quickly. I knew I knew it was alcohol. But that was in June 2020. And then I tried in July to go like two days without drinking, four days without drinking. And it sucked. And I was like, oh, God. But I started getting this pain in my side. And that's what pushed me to keep going. I was, I became scared for my health. Like, I actually became scared. Did you get it checked out or you just assumed you're like, okay, this is mm-hmm. something not good and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. I still have a problem going to the doctor. Yeah. I think a lot of people in sobriety do, right? But my dad's a doctor and I knew that it was this pain that I shouldn't be having. That scared me. That is what pushed me into trying to lose weight and to also – like I was not at a healthy size. I do believe people's bodies are all different and beautiful. It wasn't about the size or the look. It was actually unhealthy. And I was totally scared for my life. So we get back to New York. The second we got back to New York though, I started feeling better because – you have to walk everywhere in New York City. Like I had my mom's car when we were up in New Hampshire. So I'm walking again and I'm slowly feeling a little bit better. You know, my therapist had made me start saying affirmations in about in June 2020, that same time I had that breakthrough. Yeah. And I re- I couldn't say them. I would like stand in the mirror and cry. And be mm. like, I don't, I don't believe anything. Like I don't. Uh. But when I look back through my like journaling and my notes, like that's when everything started changing was when I actually started being like, you are a good, like you, I, you know, I, I love myself. Was it like that simple? Like I love myself? Yeah. It was, or it's like, I'm grateful for X, Y. I would just write things that I wasn't actually grateful for at the time because I didn't believe them, but I would say in the present tense to try to convince myself. Totally. That's a, th- that's like a thing. That's acting as if, right? Because our brain doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. And our brain doesn't know the difference. Like you guys, our brain doesn't know the difference between what's real and what we tell it. So tell it good shit, even if it's not real. Because then eventually you believe it. 
eventually it becomes real. Yeah, you do. It's called acting as if. Yeah, or manifesting or whatever, visualizing, all of that stuff totally is so powerful. But I never believed how powerful. Listen, people always said, your words are powerful. How you talk to yourself matters. And I was like, okay, thanks. Right. I mean, it sounds trite. It does. But it's true. And it's it's the most essential. It's the most important part is how you talk to yourself. I had the most negative self-talk. I hated myself. I'd be like, you're dumb. I'm dumb. I don't get this. I'm not creative. Blah, blah, blah. When I changed the self-talk, that's when I was able to stop drinking. Oh, wow. That's when I was able to change my life. Yeah. And you did that by saying it before you believed it, right? Oh, yeah. Six months before. I would stand there. My therapist made me. And I would stand there and I'd cry in the mirror. I couldn't say anything nice to myself. (laughs) But I would force myself and I would do it. And then it got easier. Even though I didn't believe it, I kept doing it. And then I started to kind of believe it. Yeah. And then, so yeah, so then we're in the city, New York. I'm like trying to walk. I'm trying to say these affirmations. I'm kind of slowly implementing the foundation of my sobriety. I just didn't know and it at the time. And are you drinking at the time? Yeah. Okay. I think that's really important too, because you're like, it's all of these building blocks and you're still drinking. So it's not like my story is, is I think a rare one in the spontaneous sobriety thing where I'm just like, wait, what? Okay, I'm done. Like this, I think is more common where it's like, you're starting to build up to that while you're still drinking, because that's a huge part. It's still going on. I think that's really important to point out. I mean, and I don't know how successful I would have been if I hadn't done all that pre-work. Total. That's essential. Yeah. But I didn't know at the time. At the time, I just thought I could do anything I could to not have to stop drinking. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Of course. Right? And then so then it, it was um, Hanukkah. My mom had gotten me Quit Like a Woman by Holly Whitaker. Mm, so good. But I was still drinking. And I was like um, – she's like, Chrissy Teigen was holding it up. I thought you would like it. Don't you like Chrissy Teigen? I was like, thanks, mom. <laughs> You're like, okay. Yeah. And so she was like, why don't we do Dry January together? Oh. I was like, I don't want to do dry January. <laughs> but she knew that the weight was a really big issue for me. And my sister's wedding is now happening in October 2021. This is January. That's a good time where I could make an impact on my health. She's like, why don't you just try it for 30 days? I didn't – January 1st, January 2nd, I had drank or was hungover. I woke up on the 3rd and I was like, all right, screw it. I'm just going to try I, I didn't think yeah. I could make it 30 days. I hadn't made it more than seven. And I did make it 30 days. <laughs> wow. I, I couldn't believe it. I, yeah. I don't know what what it was. Maybe it was also the camaraderie of dry January. People not asking too many questions because it's, oh, I'm doing dry January. Totally. Like, it's like a built-in excuse. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it was still COVID. Like like the lockdown was, was over, but there weren't – it was still – restaurants were shut. You know, it wasn't – Everything wasn't back open and I didn't have a job still. I was still unemployed. You know, I think that I didn't have a lot of pressure on me. And I think that made me also, I just started waking up and feeling great. And I woke up with a hangover every day, some kind of a hangover. So my body, like even the first few months, it expected that hangover. And when I'd wake up and it was like, it was like, oh, ready. And then I was like, I feel great. I feel amazing. Yes. Let me go to Central Park. And and I would. And I started walking like six miles every morning. 
and I lost a hundred pounds. <laughs> wow. It, was it wasn't just about the weight, of course, but the that kept me going. Yeah, and that's like a tangible thing. Like when you can see progress, you know, that's really helpful. Cause a lot of times we can't see like we can't see emotional progress. Like we can't we can't track progress like that, but that was like progress that you could see. Yeah. And People say, like, don't try to do it all at once, but that's just also my personality. So, like, the yeah. day I stopped drinking or for the 30 days, I was like, I'm going to do Weight Watchers because I had tried to do it in the past, but I would drink all my points that I had for the week and, like, that would mess it all up, right? So, I was like, okay, I'm not going to drink the points this time, so maybe it will work. And it worked. Wow. <laughs> I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, but the anxiety that had got like, that I always had my whole life, the, like, tight ring whatever of anxiety that's still my why to this day that feeling of being able to breathe my anxiety was so crippling I couldn't do things alone I couldn't do a lot of things and it's crazy that so many people don't tie their anxiety to alcohol like because I didn't know that like before I stopped drinking I didn't know how much alcohol affected anxiety and our mental health and everything and that's just the huge my mom would tell me she would say I read that alcohol that when you have anxiety that alcohol just like makes it worse and I'd be like mom you don't know what you're talking about I don't know what you're reading it's the only time my anxiety is controllable is when I'm drinking that's what we think because we just care less right you just you just don't care about shit and so well, it actually is that anxiety true, comes yeah that anxiety comes back too like well you're tenfold. stuck in that you're stuck in the, the trap Right? So you're yeah. anxious. It, it does relieve it. But then you're just more anxious than when you started because of the anxiety. Totally. And then you're at a deficit when you start the next time. And then you just keep sinking lower and lower. Yes. Oh, brutal. Yeah. And so then you started to feel better. Did you – were you re- reading Quit Like a Woman during Dry January too? Mm-hmm. That's huge too. I mean that book and This Naked Mind, all those books that like change how we think about alcohol I think are huge. But I still didn't think I was going to go more than 30 days. Yeah. Like I I didn't go into this being like, I'm going to get sober. Totally. I don't know who does. You know, it's it's easy to like make our stories make sense when you look back. And like I look back to January 19th, 2020 and I'm like, yep, that's the day. I was like, I'm done. But it's like, no, no, no. It only makes sense when I look back. And I'm like, oh, now I see what I did. I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I said I'm done. And I was like, holy shit, what the hell does that mean? Like, I have no idea. It's wild, though. I think sometimes thinking in those forever terms is just hard, right? Oh, so like, when do we think about forever for anything, right? Marriage, but that's about it. It's just, I think it's just fear, right? It's just your fear of like not knowing what's going to happen and how to be prepared. And if you're not prepared and all of these, it's just anxiety and fear. And I always try to just shift the perspective back to what I do know. Like, I don't have to know for, I don't have to know that. What do I know? I mean, I know that life is so much better without alcohol and that alcohol makes everything so much harder. Like once I shift back to that, then I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. I mean, 
I have to de- dedicate now my everything to just spreading the word. I'm going to be that annoying sober person that doesn't shut up about it. We need those. We we <laughs> are both those people. We need to like change the change the vibe and like and get the word out because and you do such a great job at that. Like you're sober in Central Park. You guys check it out right now. Pull up Instagram. You really do, and you make me. I've always I live in Chicago, but I always wanted to move to New York. But you just your your life seems just so full and and vibrant and exciting and you do the before and afters right so you're like when I was drinking and when you were working at a gala and now and you're like after and you're attending a gala and it's like you could just see like the light is back on those before and afters some people will say to me it's like well is it just about the weight. Is it what I'm like? No, no, that's just like what I looked like back then. Yeah. That's like what I looked like. I'm not, nothing to do with the weight. It's not about the weight loss. (laughs) Like it's about the look and how I looked miserable and hopeless and sad all the time. And I thought I looked happy in some of those pictures. Those pictures are like the ones of me going to the event. I thought I was looking good when I took that selfie. I mean, you, you were, but it's like in comparison now to like, you just see, I think that that's really where you notice sobriety is in people's eyes. I notice it in my, I mean, though the whites are whiter, they're just brighter. It does look like there's so much more life and there is. Yeah, there is. And I think you realize why you're living and you get your why and you yes, oh, just have a whole new outlook on everything. And you do. Oh my God. How yeah. old are you? You're going to be 34 next month. Oh, 34. Oh, to quit when I was 34. Okay, but I'll tell you that I've been – I'm like the old one in this whole new group of friends that I have. Everyone else you is are. like in their 20s. Yeah, I'm hanging out with people that are 25 who are quitting. And I'm like <laughs> I'm, your mom. I'm like your mom. How did you find your sober friends? Like, Because that's where we get asked. All through okay, Instagram. Good. Everything good. is Instagram. That's why I created my account was because I needed to find friends and a community and I didn't have that. And I didn't, I didn't do AA and I just needed to find – support. It was mostly just internet friends until I was about a year sober. And I met my first in real life friend from Instagram in Central Park. She lived on the Upper West Side. I was on the Upper East Side. We made mocktails under the cherry blossoms. And we were still really close friends. So yeah, I mean, and now all my friends are people from Instagram. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I always say Instagram gets a bad rap, but like that's, that's, our community and and it doesn't stop at Instagram. Like, yes, you can meet these people in real life. They're actual people and real friends. (laughs) Well, now I have events where people can come and make friends. (gasps) Okay. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I, I, well, it's not my whole thing. I mean, I'm working on like a few bunch of things, but I am trying to have as many events as I can where people can come and find their community and connect with other people without the presence of alcohol. One way of always doing that is Sundays at 9 a.m., Come walk Central Park with me. It's free. I'm doing it with a nonprofit recovery organization and anybody can come. And we had our first one last weekend and it was magical. Oh my God. It sounds magical. I want to come. Actually, one of my best friends lives in New York and I'm going to tell her about it. And when I come visit her, we'll come because that sounds amazing. You should totally come. So, so it's every Sunday at 9 a.m.? Yeah, for for now. Like until it gets like deathly hot here and no one wants to go out um, of the house. But yes, for now, it is every Sunday at 9 a.m. 
yeah, where can people find the info so they can sign up for the walk and for your events and everything? It's on my Instagram. It's also on my website on soberincentralpark.com. And yeah, I mean, really anywhere. If you just type in Sober in Central Park, there'll be like a link that pops up about my events. Yes. Okay, good. (laughs) Which is the perfect name too. I love it so much. Well, it was very literal. It was a very literal name. I didn't know what to do with myself when I stopped drinking. I had all this time and I didn't know my way around Central Park. And I started just living Central Park pretty much. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. I mean, Well, Rachel, I'm so glad that we did this and that I got to know you and I'm totally coming there and I'm going to join a walk and everybody go, go follow her sober in Central Park. I love it. And go, go sign up. If you're in New York, I'm jealous because you get to go to these events and see that sober is fucking cool. Sober people are cool. We are not boring. I promise you. Yeah. And go follow Rachel. We are cool. We're really we cool. cool. I'm telling we you. Are. And the friends I have now are so, so cool and so fun. Nothing yes. about my life is boring. My old life was boring. Falling asleep on the couch, passing out, blacking out, hurting. That was boring. Everything I'm doing now, not boring. <laughs> yes. I know. We're rebranding sobriety, damn it. Oh, my God, Rachel. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much for having me on. This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sober Mom Life. If you loved it, please rate and review it wherever you listen. Five stars is amazing. Also, follow me on Instagram at The Sober Mom Life. Okay, I'll see you next week. I'm going to go reheat my coffee. Bye. Addiction impacts all of us. Addiction's consequences run through all of us. From ourselves to our loved ones and through our communities, addiction creates so much loss and grief. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm the host of the Addicted Mind podcast, a show featuring personal stories, expert guests, and vital information about addiction and addiction recovery. We'll talk with leading treatment providers to discuss the latest research and treatment options for this devastating disease and advocate for mental health awareness. We discuss topics like the importance of creating a community of support to helping loved ones to some of the latest research on psychedelic medicines. The Addicted Mind podcast has been about creating hope, listening to stories of many amazing people that have overcome addiction and are thriving. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, subscribe to the Addicted Mind podcast wherever you get your podcasts or check out theaddictedmind.com. New episodes every Monday. See you there.